I'll begin reading in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So again, as we've been working our way through this passage here in Colossians chapter 2, we'll be picking it up in verse 13. Uh, Again, he's been talking about the benefits and the realities of this relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Again, the phrase that we uh, began to focus on a couple of weeks ago was the phrase, in him, and what that signifies, what that symbolizes, uh, what we are to kind of think about when it comes to that phrase. And there's this this strong attempt by Paul, once again, to instill in us this idea that um, this relationship we have with Jesus Christ is truly intimate in every way, uh, and that it is, um, our salvation is accomplished by him, it is through him, we have faith in him, he's the one that regenerates us, he's the one that reconciles us to himself, he's the one that empowers us uh, to live the Christian life, he's the one that instructs us to live the Christian life, Uh, He's the one that we rely on because he's the one that gives us strength. It's all based on that relationship that we have with Jesus. You heard me say before that that we often as believers will talk about this personal relationship that we have with Christ. And and that's a proper way of saying it. The problem with that at times is sometimes people assume that when we speak of a personal relationship, what we mean is that it's private. Private. So we want to get away from that idea that we have a private relationship. We do have a relationship with Christ that is an, it's an individual relationship. All right? So I guess we, so we kind of relate it this way. So I have a relationship with my wife, but it's not private. Now, there are many things in our relationship that are private, but it's not a private relationship. Everyone knows we're married. I don't, you know, I don't tell her, now look, I know we're married, but don't tell anybody. Okay, that's not what we do. Most, most of us wear a ring because we want others to know that what? That we are married. All right? that's, so, so, it's an, so we have that relationship with the individual, and though there are private aspects to the relationship, it's not a private relationship. Uh, and the reason why we need to emphasize that is for some reason, that idea kind of took hold of a lot of evangelicals in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s to where individuals would say, well... You know, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have a personal relationship with him. And, you know, I don't publicize that. Or I don't this, or I don't that. And they, they, I guess they were thinking, because that was kind of the thought at the time, that that was a proper way of identifying your relationship. It was also a way to get out of sharing Christ with others and a lot of other things that go along with that. So we want to make sure that we don't, we don't want the world to think that a religious relationship is private because that's what the world likes. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. You keep your belief private. I'll keep my belief private. And that's why in our culture, people have such a hard time with Christianity because there's so many aspects of Christianity that really is public. It affects the way we treat people, the way we think. I mean, all kinds of things. I think uh, I've showed you before that I was talking to a guy at, at Starbucks in Brunswick. I was teaching at a children's camp, and uh, when they do crafts and stuff, I would go to Starbucks for a couple hours and read. And I was sitting there reading, this guy came over to me, and I forgot I was wearing the camp t-shirt. It only has a cross on it, and it said Ferguson Avenue Baptist, because I'm thinking, how does this guy know I'm religious? You know, but he <laughs> was kind of like, you know, look at your shirt, Bob. But this guy came over to me, and, and he just, he said, well, I noticed you were reading, and he goes, is that a Bible? I said, yeah, it's a Bible. And so I just kind of, we talked for a little bit, and I told him what I was doing there, and that I was teaching you know, children's camp, and he goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, you pastor a church and you're teaching children? I go, oh, absolutely. And uh, he goes, yeah, I, I don't know what I think about that. I go, well, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm just, you know, religion, it's just, it's just so negative, and he went through all this stuff, and I said, oh. I said, so uh, I'm just kind of surprised that you, that you would be against this. 
He said, why would you be surprised? I said, well, one of the main things about Christianity is we believe we should be honest with everyone. And you, are you against us teaching kids they should be honest? Well, no, 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 not that part. I said, oh, I said, well, you don't believe they should be respectful to their elders? Well, well no, that, that's a good idea. And I said, and I said, and we, we teach that they, that they shouldn't lie. He goes, well, okay, well, that's okay. I said, well, I don't know what, what part is it. Well, you know all the negative parts. I go, I don't know what negative part you're talking about. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I said, but I said, we also, we also talked about racism. He goes, you do? I said, yeah, we, we teach them that uh, we are to love everyone because everyone's made in the image of God. He goes, well, well, of course, it's the right thing. I said, no, 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 you missed what I said. I didn't say it was the right thing. It is the right thing, but it's not what I teach them. Why is it right? Because of what God said. I said, God said that we're made in his image. So we are to have respect and treat everyone who's made in God's image with kindness, which would happen to be every single human being on the planet. I said, are you against that? He goes, well, well no, of course not. I said, okay. So I'm not understanding what part of the Christian brainwashing you're not for. You know, and, uh, and so he said, well, I need to rethink that. I said, well, okay. I said, I'll be here tomorrow if you want to talk some more. But he didn't come back. Um, but anyway, so, but in our world, we live people, for whatever they have in their mind, they prefer that we keep things to ourselves. And so um, I'm not saying we should try to be obnoxious about it. I don't think that's the right approach. But I don't think we give in. And you know, apologize, say, yes, I'll keep it to myself. Uh, and so but part of what enables us to do that, again, is this relationship that we have with Christ. Uh, and so in the same way, again, our relationship with Christ is not private, even though it is personal. And so that's what he's stressing about all these things we have. So what he does here, he did this a little bit in, in Ephesians to a great deal. He touches on it here. He says in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses. So he is describing the state of the individual before salvation. We say that the individual before they got saved, they were dead because they're spiritually dead. That individual is um, spiritually unresponsive to spiritual truth. That individual has no spiritual life. That's why we need to be born again because we're dead. Uh, and that's mentioned throughout throughout the New Testament that becomes very, very clear about our state before coming to Christ. Uh, we are raised from the dead. That's what our baptism symbolizes, being raised from the dead. You know, we're buried with Christ in baptism and then we're raised up out of the water uh, and that symbolizes the resurrection of Christ. And as we've already said, when Christ died, I died. Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ rose again, I rose again because of that identity that we have with Christ. And that's what he's getting at here. So we were then, in a sense, a spiritual corpse. Right, a spiritual corpse is unable to uh, respond to any stimuli, no matter what's going on. That's why, even when we evangelize uh, or we tell others about the Lord, we pray that God would what? That God would open their eyes. That God would touch their heart. There's a lot of ways we say it, but the idea is we're asking God to intervene so the individual will hear the truth. And then, of course, we want them to respond to the truth. But you need to remember that that it, so it's not up to us. And so there's a, there's a great deal of freedom for us. We don't have to, to make the gospel more appealing. Because the, the temptation with that is that we, get, we begin to change the gospel. How to do that? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. So we just need to know the gospel. And um, we're not against telling the gospel in as clear of a way as possible. And we can illustrate it in many ways. All that is good. But we're never trying to compromise the gospel or change it to make it more palatable to people. All right? we, don't, we don't want to make it sound better to people because uh, then you change the message. Remember, it, it is the message of Christ, the whole message that we are sinners um, and that we need salvation. We, we've sinned against a holy God. We are to obey a holy God because we're made in his image. He created us. And so he has a right to say how we are to live and, and what is right. And all those things that are in, in the gospel, some of those things that are assumed as we talk about it, but all these truths are there that people need to hear and you don't even have to convict them of their sin. That's not your job. It's not my job. 
That's one of the reasons why I don't yell when I preach. Why would I yell? You know, I'm not trying to make you feel, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. Because if you feel guilty because I'm yelling at you, what does that accomplish? That guilt feeling goes away after a while. I want you to be convicted by God. That doesn't go away. That's what we want. And so we want to clearly explain uh, the word of God to people. So we don't have to try to come up with, like, we don't have to have dramatic music that makes people feel a certain way emotionally. We just want the spirit to do the work. And he tells us that that work is done as we declare, right? Because remember sometimes, maybe oftentimes we read the Bible where it just says that we are to preach the word of God. That's not just to pastors. That's to everybody. The word preach just means to declare or just to make known. That's all it means, to make known. So that's what all of us are to do. And we don't have to worry about, if, if that individual does not believe in Christ when you share the gospel with them, you've not failed. You haven't failed. Right? That person hasn't believed. Whether you have one uh, opportunity to tell them about Christ or a hundred. It's the same message. It doesn't change. We want to make sure they, they've grasped it. You'd be amazed how much of that simple message people can misunderstand. And so we just want to explain that to them. And then we continue to pray for them and ask that God will use that. And God does in amazing ways. Um, you know, there's incredibly great stories of how individuals have become converted and the various ways that people have been converted. But again, it's always, it always ends up being the same in the end. In the end, it's always the same thing. They, they're responding to the gospel of Christ. Um, and uh, even if someone says, well, of course I, I, I believe in Christ. You know, I was in a car wreck and God saved my life. Um, it's great that God saved your life, but you, you didn't believe uh, and receive salvation because God saved your life. It's because you understood the gospel. Now, that may have prompted you to listen to the gospel because God saved your life. That's a good thing. But that's not why you got saved. You got saved because it's the response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so, again, that's what, that's what he's talking about here, again, is their state. So he's reminding them of this, again, so he can emphasize the strength and the reality of what Christ has done in us in salvation. So, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, the uncircumcision of the flesh is the same thing. It's the same idea. That there's a veil over your heart. You're not responsive. You're not understanding the gospel. And so, that's, that's what he's talking about and why he uses that phrase um, about um, being circumcised. So, the Bible is the source of spiritual truth. The Bible makes really no sense to a spiritual corpse. Uh, the, another way to talk about that is we're dead in our sins, or maybe the natural man. The natural man is the man apart from Christ. So let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Because I even used to think this when I was much younger. Because heard, I heard preachers say that uh, the unsaved person cannot understand the Bible. So that's, so that's true and false at the same time. So it's not true they can't understand anything about the Bible. Because they can. They can, they, can know, they can know intellectually a great deal. But the idea is, can they know the Bible in the sense that they understand the gospel, that they are in need of Christ, that they are in rebellion? Can they, can they grasp that? Even though it's simple in a sense intellectually, not, they don't get that. They're not getting it. Okay? They, they can read Genesis and they can get, yeah, it's teaching that God created everything. They may believe that, may not believe that, but they can understand that. And they know what it means. But when it comes to the death of Christ, they, they're not, they don't get it. They might be able to mimic your words and say, well, because I've had guys tell me, well, I know it's something about Christ dying for sin. But they don't believe, many of them at least, Westerners, don't believe they've sinned. You know, we've talked before about how people view sin. You know, to them, sin is, well, I've not committed adultery, I've not committed murder, so I'm not a sinner. Right? People really do think that. They're not trying to be dumb. They're not trying to be cute. They just think that sin is a serious word reserved for serious wrongdoings. So that's why we want to help them understand that no, sin is a word that does talk about that, but that in, in one sense, all sin is serious because it's an act of rebellion against God, against a perfect God. Right? We wouldn't say that if a child is, dis, let's say a child is very cruelly disrespectful to their parents. We don't say, well, that's okay because they didn't murder them. No, that's not, that's not the criteria. We say, well, I'm, we're glad that they, he didn't murder them, and that would be worse. But we would never say that this amount of disrespect to the parents is nothing. That's very serious. That's his parents. And so we, so we kind of recognize that 
the severity of the sin doesn't always, uh, the, the severity of what we think is wrong doesn't always determine the seriousness of the issue. If a child is that way to their own parent, that, you know, like your child can be disrespectful to me, it's not a big deal. You know, I, I can live with that. My children disrespectful to me? There's all kinds of issues with that. You know, I'm hurt and I'm angered, all that at once because of the relationship that we have. You know, it's different now. I am their father, and so, and they're my child. So that whole dynamic uh, changes, I guess you would say, the degree of the offense. But well, we are all created by God in his image, all of us. So then our rebellion against him is very serious. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to get, we want people to understand that. So Paul here again is reminding us of that about ourselves, that that's where we were. So again, the natural man can understand some things about the Bible intellectually, but he cannot understand the Bible spiritually. Okay, so remember, spiritually does not mean mystically. Because some people think that. They think, oh, this, 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 it's the mystical. No, it's all, it, it comes back down to what we would call spiritual truth, which is still based in reality, right? Jesus is the perfect God-man who came in the flesh. That's reality. That's not mystical truth. That's, that is spiritual truth. We believe that by faith. Okay, because we're trusting what the Word of God says. So that's what faith is. Faith is we're trusting that. Another way to say it is I'm putting my whole weight basically on that truth. I am I'm putting all of my faith marbles are in one basket, and that's the Bible, what God says. And so that's the idea there. Uh, so that is that's the spiritual truth or the spiritual aspect. So we don't we also don't want to, we don't want to allow ourselves or this to think that that spiritual truth is somehow divorced from either reality or tangible truth. It, it is those things. But as the Bible says, these things are spiritually discerned, which again means that the Lord is the one who awakens us or opens our eyes to understand that. So that the, so that the, the um, as we brought the spiritual life, we, we begin to get it and we understand. All right, so we just wanna make sure we keep those terms clear because the world, sometimes we end up being like the world or an individual who maybe is a new believer we still think in those terms or categories that the world has established. That spiritual is often equated to mystical and is vague and you can't really touch it and you just, just, you just kind of know it when you feel it. Yeah, all that's untrue. Um, you know, that's, that's the jargon that the world uses. So, we want, so we're, we're back to the idea that, that because of our faith in Christ, both of our feet are firmly planted on the ground. Okay, the nature of Christianity, um, even if an individual has a wonderful emotional experience, our feet are planted on the ground. Okay, I, I know I am going to heaven not because of anything that I experience. I know I'm going to heaven because of the truth of the gospel, and I trust it. See, that, that's rooted in reality. Uh, you study Buddhism. You study Hinduism and all these different kind of religions. That they're not their feet aren't on the ground. Okay, there's a bunch of other things, uh, along with a very large dose of uncertainty as to what if anything happens when we die. Um, and so again, that's back to uh, to the difference. So again, um, that is why that's what Paul is getting at and reminding these individuals of. So the spiritually dead person who is still in Adam, the first Adam, is that person is dominated by the world. We're dominated by the flesh. We're dominated by the by the devil, uh, and the uh, the tragic aspect of that is is we don't see life. Uh, we're not going to receive eternal life that comes from God. All we're going to have is the wrath of God. And the Bible describes it in John three as the wrath of God abides on man. All right, so we're already in that position before we become believers. Um, uh, so I, again, part of that in the whole conversation we're giving, some people wrongly say that, um, well, we're all children of God. So just remember, that's not true. We are not all children of God. We are all created by God. We're all creatures, but all of us are not children of God. You have to become his child. John 1, 12, to as many as believe in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You don't have to become something if you already are. You know, I, how ridiculous would it be if I tell you, say, well, I'm hoping to become a man. Bob? Uh, you're a man. Now, I could be all kinds of things. I could be an immature man, but I'm not a child. I'm a man. So I don't have to become a man. 
So you have to become a child. And that comes again by faith in Christ. Yes, Sandra? Um, but we can tell them that they are made in the image of God. Always. That's what it means by being creatures or being created of God, by okay, God. Yeah, and that image is marred by sin. That's why we need to be saved. So being in the image of God does not mean you're going to heaven. Uh, it just means you're accountable to, to God. The word transgressions that's used here in verse 13, it's a familiar word. We're, we're, most of us hear these different words for, uh, for sin. Transgression, again, is a word that literally means a falling aside um, or to stumble on something. Um, it means to uh, basically take a false step. It's a violation of a moral standard or a deviation um, from what has been revealed as the right way to live. So an individual violates the conscience. That's a transgression. Um, there's, the reason why there's different words used for sin in the Bible is to try to give us a full scope of what that is. Just like there's different words for what Christ has done on the cross. We use the word atonement. We use the word redemption and so on. Um, that's the purpose of that. But if you would turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2. Paul goes into a little more detail on this, so I want us just to see it and view it just for a few moments. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> so beginning in verse 1, Ephesians 2 reads this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So simply when he says the, in, in which you once walked, what Paul means by that is as you lived your life, it was like you were living in a sphere and everything you did was sinful. That was your life. That was your, that was your existence. You were spiritually dead and trespasses and sin and you, and you walked in them. That was your, that was your daily habit uh, was that. Remember that the non-believer technically is sinning 24 hours a day because every moment you are refusing to acknowledge God, you are rebelling. So we, we, and the reason why that aspect is important because some people think in their mind, I'm not God's enemy and I don't hate him. The Bible does say that the non-believer hates God, but we keep thinking of hatred as being this very volatile attitude that an individual has. And that is a description of hatred, but it's not the only one. Basically, um, it goes back to Romans. We've, I've mentioned to you before the difference between two very important, there's more than two important words, but there's two important words there, which says that uh, every man knows that God is angry about um, ungodliness and unrighteousness. So, those, so Paul's not repeating himself. Those are two concepts. Unrighteousness is the wrong things that we do, the acts that we do that are wrong. Ungodliness is more of a passive word in a sense, and what that simply means is you live your life ignoring God or you live your life not acknowledging God. God hates that. Okay, that's, that's sin. And so, that's, that, so, that, so therefore the non-believer then is sinning 24 hours a day. Everything they do is against God. Remember, they don't think that way. Uh, but it's not your job to make them feel guilty about it. We just explain it. We let God, you know, take care of that aspect. So again, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In case you were unsure, uh, the prince of the power of the air is just another term for Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is pointing out to the Ephesians, the lack of uniqueness of where they were before Christ. We're all the same. And this is describing us. So we were following the world. And what that looks like individually is, is we were following the passions of the flesh. So our passions are not always sinful. But apart from Christ, if we follow after them, meaning they dictate the way we live, that, that's a sinful way to live. We're, we're, we're responding based on just the way we feel. It also says carrying out the desires of the body. We're not evaluating our desires according to what the scripture says. We're just seeking to fulfill them. Okay? So that's, that's the problem here. And then it goes, it goes not only the desires of the body, but the desires of the mind. So that we were by nature, by just the, the nature of who we are, we are children of wrath. Meaning God's wrath, God's judgment is waiting for those 
uh, or is on those who are living this way. But, uh, and there's a couple of verses in the Bible where it says, but God, which is a very important two-word phrase, meaning what he just said, that's it. There's no alternative to that except God. God is the one who makes the difference. And of course, that's what it says. But God, that describes God, being rich in mercy. Okay, that's important because God's wrath is abiding on us. So it's important to know that he's a merciful God because of the great love with which he loved us. So not only is God merciful, but there is this great love that God has for us. And again, remember that's not just an emotional feeling that God has. Love is a very, very powerful word um, when we understand it correctly. It's got nothing to do with feelings. Feelings are like the dressing or like the icing on the cake. But love is this uh, incredible uh, commitment to someone else's well-being. It, it's, it's, it's what drives you. It's number one. It is your commitment to their... So when a man and woman get married, what they're really saying when they take their vows is, I am committing myself to your happiness. I'm committing myself to your well-being. Whether, whether we are sick, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever, I'm committing myself to that regardless of how I feel and regardless of what I'm going through. That's really what that is. And that person, thank goodness, is also taking that vow towards us. So it's a very powerful thing. That's the way that it's supposed to be. And so that is God's love for us. God is not suddenly loving us because when we were born we looked cute. Okay, that's how we love puppies. Right? We love puppies because they look cute. We love kittens because they look cute. I'm a dog person, not a cat person. So when the kittens would go up with cats, I'm like, eh, we can do without that. All right? Dogs, most dogs are okay. Uh, but the point is, is, you know, how little kids are, right? Sometimes you want, oh, that dog is so cute. Yeah, but he's going to grow up. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work. All right? So, and of course, now they, they use these drugs to keep certain dogs looking like little tiny things the rest of their life. I don't know what that does to the animals, but anyway. So the idea is it's a very powerful word. So, he, so we, have, we have this lost position that we're in. Then because God is rich in mercy and because he has this great love, which we, he loved us, he says, he reminds us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So he's just trying to emphasize the impossibility of the situation. Um, so it would be like walking into a graveyard and walking up to a grave that obviously has a dead person in it and saying, because I am rich in mercy, because that person deserved to die, that person deserved to die. And because I have great love, I'm going to make that person alive. Man, what a great thing. Right? I think we would expect that person, if that was to happen like that, I think we would all would expect that person to be grateful. Right? If they've experienced death that way. Remember there was a story once. It was a, it was a car wreck. Um, and there was this guy who was, uh, I think he was an Iraqi national who had moved to America and he moved to America to escape whatever was going on there in Iraq. And so it was in New York City, and there was this bad wreck, and this guy, he risked his life, and he saves uh, this, this lady and her little girl. Uh, he, he, he gets very bad burns on his hands, but he's able to get them out of this, extract them from this vehicle before it's fully engulfed in flames, and he saves their life. So they're doing a story on one of those new shows, and they talk about that every year on the little girl's birthday, this man is, this man is invited to everything the family does, birthdays and family reunions, the whole deal. So the reporter is talking to the lady and says, man, you know, we, why, would, why would you invite this guy to your family reunion? I mean, you know, he's not family. And so as best she can, she's explained to him, don't you get it? He saved my life. I wouldn't be at the family reunion if it wasn't for him. My daughter wouldn't be having a birthday or be at the family reunion if it wasn't him. He is the reason our family reunion is the way that, I mean, she goes through all this long list of things, which is she was accurate in all of it. And, of course, this man didn't feel like an orphan. They, they truly welcomed him in. You know, and he talked for years about trying to get his wife out of Iraq, and he was finally able to do that. And they didn't say, well, now your wife can't come. You know, you can come, but your wife's not invited. No, 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 no. I mean, the wife was coming. I mean, it was just this, there was this very deep friendship that was there. 
which we would all, and of course the reporter, I guess, is being devil's advocate, because I think everybody watching would say, well, of course they would have invited all those things. This guy, what he did was incredible. He didn't even know them, and he risked his life, you know, to do this. So that, that, that's how we are really to, to view our salvation, is we were really dead. We were, remember, remember that the Bible says that uh, we were condemned already. So it's what we have to remind ourselves of, because sometimes when we think of death and judgment and heaven and hell, we think about it in the wrong way. So when anyone stands before God, no one ever stands before God so God can give a verdict as to whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. That's already been determined. It's determined here in this life. When you are born, it's determined at that point you're condemned. Until something changes, you're condemned. And of course, obviously, that's where, thank goodness, salvation steps in and changes uh, that, that verdict on us. So when an unbeliever dies, remember, there's, there's no one looking for their name in the book. That's not going on. No one's weighing the good and bad to see what they have more of. No one's doing that. That doesn't happen. You're only standing for God for the sentencing. When it comes to judgment, some people have in their mind this idea that we stand before God to be judged and God will then determine where we go. No, that's not what that's determining. When you stand before God and he's your judge and you are a non-believer, he's determining in a sense what level of punishment you're going to get. There's, there's, no, there's no thought that you might make it to heaven. That's not happening. That's, that's another line. You're in the wrong line. And there's no mistakes in what line you're in. Okay? When we die as believers... There's no line for us. When we stand before God, when the Bible even speaks of judgments, God is never judging us as to whether or not we're worthy of heaven. We're not worthy. But because we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, I'm going to heaven. He then will judge my works, and whatever works I, that I have that don't make it, they're just burned up. I, it doesn't affect my salvation. And then whatever I get rewarded for, I get rewarded for, and then we move on from there. And so we just gonna make, we gonna make sure that if you're ever talking to a non-believer, never assume that if words like, if they even use words like judgment, that they know what that means. Because they don't. They, many of them, maybe most, think that somehow there's a determining, a determination there that's going to happen. I still got a chance. No, you don't. No one's making an argument that you really meant well in your life. That that's over with. Um, and so, so there's, a, there's this, an incredible sense of finality. Uh, to that, and that's what we really have to understand, and I think that should motivate us uh, to, to pray maybe even harder for those that we care for that don't know Christ. Because remember, they're not going to be condemned, they already are. All right, they already are condemned. And that, that's, you know, I guess it's like the name of that movie, Dead Man Walking. All right, that comes from the prison system when individuals are on death row. All right, they're, they're, they're only there until they get executed. So they are literally, in one sense, they're already dead. And so that's kind of a phrase that came out of one of the movies, but it has been used in prison for a long time. So moving on. So verse, uh, verse 5. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, that's God, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So he throws it in there just to make sure they're reminded that it's by grace, which means because of God's goodness to us. All right, because of his goodness I'm saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I don't know if, if modern day preachers do this much anymore. Maybe they do. But, but the way that it's stated here, that God has raised us up with him and seated us, that's past tense. I'm not seated with Christ. I'm here on earth. But the reason why it's stated in the, in the uh, past tense is because it's viewed as already being completed. God's promises are so sure that you can speak of you and I being seated in the heavenly place in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet, because there's nothing that can prevent it from happening. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible, uh, if you think about that. There is no sin you can commit that will prevent that from happening. All right? That's what I've said before when it comes to you know, the whole idea of eternal security. That's throughout the Bible. It's not three or four verses that basically say you can't lose your salvation. It's the way the whole Bible is worded. And so it's worded that way. This, this, is a, this is viewed almost in a sense historically 
And so nothing can stop it. It's going to happen because God's word is always sure. He doesn't make any mistakes. There's no clause in here that says we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, unless you do such and such or unless you do this. No, there's none of that in there. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the idea in verse 7 is, is in the times to come, God is able to show to whoever that his grace cannot be measured because we are in a sense like the trophies. Because there's, there's this large group of individuals who were dirty, rotten scoundrels. A group of drug addicts and liars and all sorts of rebellious individuals. Individuals pretending to be moral, those who didn't even bother, and everything in between. And he says, and I saved all of these because it, it shows my goodness. I mean, it's, that's incredible. That's unbelievable. I mean, it reveals how good he is. And, this, and kind of in the same way that if an individual is very, very rich and they give a lot of money for, let's say, a hospital to be built, let's say, in a poor neighborhood. And let's say it's a specialty hospital. That, and so many of the individuals in the neighborhood, their lives have been saved, not only because of the hospital, because the hospital to them is free. And this, and this individual could say, uh, of course, we would view it as a human being bragging, because it would be. But he would say, you see all these people because of my goodness. Well, that's actually, he's actually right. He built the hospital and he paid for their treatment. That is because of his goodness. That's, that's the evidence right there. So the idea is God, who is not like a man, so he's not bragging uh, in the sense that human beings brag, but he is revealing and showing and demonstrating how deep and how great his goodness is. And of course for us, that's a good thing because who's the recipients? Well, I am. And I, yeah, I'm, I will testify to that. Absolutely. And so that's what he says here. And this is the message that's being given. So remember, you have a, let's say you have a room full of pagans who worship all these different deities that require sometimes human sacrifice. And you're trying to find a way to appease your God. And the gods are always angry and have all these rituals. And then you're hearing the story, you're hearing this message from this preacher says, no, God isn't like that. God is so good that even though you've rebelled against him, you don't have to fear him because he loves you. And this is what he did. And he goes to this explanation and says, so that in the end, God then can show in ages to come his goodness in these lives that he saved. And I guarantee you all those pagans are going, wow, that's awesome. You know, there's no one there thinking, huh, hey, God's got a pretty arrogant uh, you know, view of life. They, no one's thinking that, right? Because everybody who's saved is condemned. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible thing. And, and the message is, is profound. Verse 8, many, a verse that many of us are familiar with. We've heard a lot. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not on your own doing. It is the gift of God. So to make it clear, when you ask yourself, what is the gift of God? He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about faith. Right? Faith is the gift. So even the faith we exercise to believe in God for salvation comes from God. Because remember, we're spiritually what? We're dead. Dead men don't have faith. God in his goodness gives us the means necessary to believe. I, my, one of the illustrations I like about our salvation comes from the word being born again. So if you've ever, if you've ever seen a baby born, which is always a remarkable thing, just it's unimaginable how great that is. One of the things that, that you would, if you think about it, if you notice, is that when a baby is born, when the baby takes its first breath, this is very important. It does not take its first breath so it can become alive. It takes its first breath because it is alive. It's already alive. So when you're born again, our first breath, I believe, is the exercise of faith. When you, so if you get down to the minutest details of salvation, the nanosecond before I utter the words, I believe in Christ. I am, I am at that moment exercising the faith that God just gave me because he saved me. I mean, that's incredible. And of course, when a baby is born, what's the most natural thing that it does? It takes that breath, right? It's the most natural thing it does. All right, and so when you are born again, you do the most natural thing there is. I believe in God. I believe in, sal I believe in salvation. I believe in Christ. It's an incredible thing. Because uh, some people try, sometimes theologians can get into word 
word arguments that kind of go above everybody's head and their own. And they try, to, they try to figure out, you know, well, then if they do that, that's a work. Okay, that's not a work. Right? No one's, ever, no one's ever seen a baby born, a baby take his first breath and go, whoa. Good thing that baby chose to make that, take that breath. That baby's not thinking nothing. Okay, that's an automatic response. All right? Gasping for air because it's alive. Uh, and that's the idea that he's giving us here. So again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That is not your own. It is the gift of God. Again, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he finishes it out by reminding us that God has saved us, not just to save us for heaven, but that we are the workmanship of God. He's, he's creating his image in all of us. We're all made in the image of God. It's been marred by sin. So he is now fixing that and bringing us along to be able to fully and correctly reflect his image. And so as we become more righteous, as we pursue righteousness, we are reflecting more of God day by day. That's what's supposed to be happening. All right? That's what's supposed to be happening to us as believers. And, so, and he also adds on that we've, been not, that we've been created not only for that, but for good works. The good things that we do for others, uh, that, that's what God has created us for. And so that's what we do. And of course he reminds us that God's left nothing to chance. God has prepared these beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, and so it's, it's laid out for us. He makes it, in one sense, ease, easier for us. We don't have to make it happen. He makes it happen. We just have to, you just have to be there, uh, which is a great thing. So if you would, turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Um, we've pretty much already covered the, the phrase, which is, uh, God made us alive together with him. Uh, let me just read this. So, again, just a reminder of what it is that we, that we have with Christ as far as this, this intimate union of the believer with Christ. So we are crucified with him, we die with him, we rise with him, we live with him, we reign with him, we are joint heirs with him, we share his sufferings on earth, and we share his glory with him on his throne. Uh, that's why then when the Bible speaks of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we have that in Christ it's, that is the protection against these persuasive arguments that the world uh, raises to get us away from Christ, which is why he said in the beginning of all of this uh, that we are not to follow old wives' tables. Don't, be, you know, don't follow the, the empty philosophy of the world. The, you know, the world's trying to figure out the meaning of life. They're trying to figure out the purpose of things. You don't need that. They can't do it apart from God. It's already given to us. It's all right here. And, uh, um, and so we, we, we don't have to be swayed by those arguments, so they may be persuasive, uh, because we know who we are in Christ. Remember this also, that, that, and I think I put this in your notes, salvation is not the improvement of the old nature, it's the impartation of a new nature. And so we remember what it says in Galatians, that we are uh, a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. Uh, and that's important for us to remember. Um, uh, whether, no matter what our old life was like, when you remember, that's, that's, that's the old you. You don't have to be that person anymore. You don't have to be. All right? We are different. We have a, a new motivation, a new purpose. We have a new spirit. We have spiritual life. Christ lives within us. We have the wisdom of God that's being given to us in the word. I mean, we have a new family. It just goes on and on, all this stuff that we have. And so that's why we have kind of, in the Christian life, we have an expectation that everybody's going to what? Change. We're all going to grow. Now, it's, it, it can be this up and down thing, okay? But even if it's this, you start here, no matter how many ups and downs there are after five years, you should still be here. And then after five more years, you're going to be here, right? So there's still, again, maybe this, but we're going to, we're, our, the general direction of our life is toward God. Um, and so that's why none of us should ever be content with where we are, because I, I do think this is true. The, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more that we mature, the more aware we become of the depth of sin. So that I don't mean in a sense of a fake idea that, oh, I'm just a worm and I'm no good. It's not that at all. It has to do where we truly become much more deeply offended by our own sin. We, we can still be offended by the sin of others, but we're much more offended by our own sin. I remember reading, uh, there was a, a couple of years where I was reading several different, kind of some journal entries and, and different things about a lot of the uh, preachers and well-known believers that were around during the time of the Puritans. Uh, a lot, most of them were men, 
but a lot of guys in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And I remember reading uh, this one journal. It was a guy who was living in, in, um, uh, up in the north, and he was writing uh, in, his, in his journal about um, his neighbor. And he was confessing to the guy that he had a bad attitude toward his neighbor. And the reason why he had a bad attitude toward his neighbor was because his neighbor would borrow things and not return them. And uh, it began to bother him that this guy was doing that. And so he mentions in his journal, and he, one more before I go on, here's the thing that's important about the journal. None of these guys were writing the journal knowing one day someone was going to read them. Okay, that's not what they were doing. It was private, kind of like a diary. And normally what happened was a... a uh, a child or a grandchild found it and was moved by it and said, yeah, people need to read this. My grandfather or my grandmother was incredible. All right? Because a lot of people who write journals today are hoping somebody will get it and read it <laughs> and say how great they are. But that's not what's going on. So anyway, so he's back to his journals. He's writing his journal. He says, he said, just the other day, I saw my neighbor riding his horse down the road to my home and I shuddered. And I thought to myself, what does he want now? What am I going to lose? And then he says, I had the worst attitude uh, towards this. I was clearly a non-believer at that point. Now, he didn't mean he lost his salvation, but he's expressing in his journal his disappointment with himself that all it took was for, his, for him, he just saw his neighbor, and he's already in distress. All right, and just, just you know, Perhaps he'll turn around and not make it all the way to the house. I mean, he's just, he wants all these things to happen. So in this journal, he's confessing to God this, this horribleness that he has. And then you have to stop and remind yourself, this guy is serious. This guy is really loathing himself because of his view towards this guy. Because I'll be honest, I'm thinking, if that's me, I'm like, <laughs> Not only am I, am I upset this guy has come to my driveway, I'm right. I'm right to feel this way. And that's not this guy's attitude. And, I was, and was, as I just thought about that, it was, just, it was peculiar in that sense that I realized that this guy was right. He says, this, this, he says yeah, the guy was irresponsible in all these things that was true. He said, I should be praying for this man. He says, I, I should want this man to grow in the Lord. And he says, even, I think he said something to the effect, I'm not going to say it the way he did it, because it was very eloquent. But the idea was, is that he even wanted the man to grow in the Lord for the wrong sinful reason. Because he wanted the man to become more responsible so he wouldn't lose anything. He goes, how selfish can I be? He goes, is my sickle worth this man's soul? And the answer is no. Like, man, I mean, you almost want to think, well, I mean, come on, let's not go overboard. But that's not what he's thinking. He's not overboard. He's being right. He's right. I mean, if we think about it, because you know how easy it is to have a disdain for the neighbor? But what if that's your son? Let's say your son borrows things, he never returns them. Now, you get agitated, you still get agitated. But what's your general view towards your son? How you love him. And you, you know you're going to give it to him again. You know that. And you still want what's best for him. Well, that's how, that's how we need to view everybody. So, and I, I try to do this. Please don't test me. But, so, so you know, because as Christians, we get into situations where, you know, there's people who sometimes they can take advantage of you and sometimes they will inconvenience you. And I don't believe we should allow everyone to take advantage of us, though it will sometimes happen. But the, the, the way that I would sometimes, the way I sometimes make decisions is, so let's say John goes to the hospital tomorrow morning at 2 a.m. Pam calls me up. She's distraught. She wants me to give her a ride to the hospital. It's 2 a.m. Now, I would do it immediately. But, my, but before, my first thought would be, if she was my sister, my blood sister, would I do it? There'd be no hesitation. So why would I hesitate with this? She's my sister in the Lord. Yeah, I'll do it. I mean, boom, I'm gone. That now, this, you know, that's tough now. Because, you know, the Lord will test you on that. It'll be somebody you don't get along real well with who's going to call you. At the most inconvenient time on the planet. For somebody that's not even that serious. 
You know, it may not be, well, John had a heart attack. You know, it may be, you know, something so minor, like, well, I got a hangnail and I can't do this. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. But we're, you're going to be tested. So I'm not saying you need to drop everything if someone has a hangnail. All right. Uh, but the idea is, is that when it comes to, I'm just, I'm just, I think we have to be very careful as believers to not allow being inconvenienced and I'm thinking that somehow that's a proper and just excuse to not do something. I don't think it is. I think we need to reconsider that. I, I remember being told one time, and I know it came out of my mouth before I thought about it, but it was the right thing, so I'm happy about it. Um, but someone said, well, you know, I know we should help others, but God's never called me to be a doormat. And I said, immediately without thinking, uh, sometimes he does. Sometimes we're called to be a doormat. That, that is, that's true. I don't know if you've ever been a doormat. I know I've been a few times. The first few times, I did not like it. Tempted to do and say all kinds of things. Didn't do them, thank goodness. I'm not saying we're always a doormat. I'm not saying that, because I think there are times when it may be said on my part to be a doormat, depending on the situation and that person's needs. However, I don't think that being a Christian means that you're never a doormat. And so we need to reconsider that. Uh, sometimes we get tired because we're inconvenient. So again, it, we have to weigh a lot of things. So being inconvenienced is just one part of that. Um, so again, I don't want you to misunderstand. And somehow I'm, I'm saying that no matter how inconvenient you are, you should always do it no matter what. No, I'm just saying we need to give it more thought than only. I don't want to do it because I don't want to be inconvenienced. We're Christians. And, and, and we are to, to demonstrate God's love uh, kindness and grace and all those things. And so it, it can be really hard because uh, it goes against the natural man uh, to, to live the life as a, a believer. There's a lot of things about the Christian life that are kind of, that are easy. You know, I'm one of those that thinks, go to church, that's easy. We should do it, no matter what. We should do it. You know, we do it for the Lord. But that's, that's an easy part. The hard part is that other stuff. Don't worry, Pam. You call me at 2 a.m., I'll be there. Uh, I wasn't trying to say I'm going to weasel out of it. So uh, anyway, so uh, we will stop there because um, I don't have time to get into the next part of verse 14 and do it justice. Uh, but we'll move on from there and then uh, hopefully finish out this chapter in, in a few, uh, uh, in just a couple of weeks. But let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as always, we're grateful. You are a good God. And Father, you've been good to us through your people for a long time. And we thank you, Father, for many, many people that you've used in our lives that have been kind to us and have met our needs and have encouraged us and strengthened us and have been used by you, maybe even to help correct us, Father, so that we would continue down the right and proper path. We thank you, Father, for those that you use in our lives to bring us to, to faith in Christ. And Father, we thank you for what we have with Christ and all that you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to think often about all that Christ has done. That Lord would take a few moments at times during the week and just reflect on really how blessed we are and, and what a great relationship that we have with Christ because of all that he's done. We pray Lord you help us to really be able to, to wrap our minds around that to a greater degree. Father, we ask now that as we bring our time here to a close that you will, that you will bless each one here and keep us safe as we go home. Help us, Father, to be aware of who we are in Christ, that we may live accordingly. May we experience great joy in following you. Thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.